Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to, welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 10 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. On the line, we have Jeff Blunt, who is the MD of Bay Hill Capital. Jeff, welcome back to High FM. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always good to be online. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not on the, uh, in the studio in person. Unfortunately, I couldn't get in today. Not a problem. We share that uh, that sentiment, so that's great. Jeff, we were going to speak today about, you know, the fact that there's been a change of power in South Africa within the ANC and that there's a new president of the ANC, how that affects sentiment, how it affects the RAND. But I need to ask you before we go there, what on earth is going on? Do people need to start buying cans of uh, baked beans? Do we need to start hoarding fuel or should we just calm down? I think we should just calm down. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and I suspected you might ask that question. Um, but uh, even though you know, I knew it was going to come, uh, we, you know, we've also been very interested to understand in in markets and in what's driving this, you know, this uh, fall that came out of the U.S. yesterday that's reverberating around the world. Um, and while there's lots of interest, you know, lots of uh, you know, lots of people say this has caused it or that's caused it. The truth is. It's just a general sell-off that's come through. So it's not the end of the world. Um, I think that uh, if you look at the environment that we've in, uh, we've had very buoyant equity markets, particularly U.S. markets, for the last five years. And um, ironically, while no one really likes Trump, um, he is, uh, you know, we've had a Trump rally that came in last year, and markets have been very buoyant. Um, you've got strong economic growth coming out of the U.S., uh, recovering Europe. Um, even the emerging markets uh, are, 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 have shown uh, good signs of, uh, uh, of like, re-accelerating of growth. Remember, emerging markets never really went into severe recession. They just slowed down a bit. So <clears throat> against this backdrop of um, uh, strong global growth, um, uh, I don't want to say ecstatic equities, but strong equities, and in America in particular, slightly expensive equities. The market's, you know, a little bit expensive. They're not outrageously expensive. I think, you know, it's, it's not unexpected that you're going to get these wobbles now and again. Um, uh, this particular uh, fall that we saw come out of the U.S., I think it was down, what, 4%, something like that. Correct, just um, over 4%. Uh, it, it really just seems to have emanated from the fact that um, – uh, it looked like the Federal Reserve may raise interest rates more rapidly than expected. Now, if you remember, the way the, the way central banks, like the Reserve Bank in South Africa, work is they worry about inflation. Correct. Um, and and when they see the risk of inflation rising, normally inflation rises because it means the economy is very strong. There's lots of pe- people are buying things and pushing it. So when there's a lot of demand because of a strong economy, people prices rise because people will pay up to buy stuff. Um, and so they raise interest rates just to slow the economy slightly or just to reduce, take the edge off uh, consumer demand, or at least say to uh, uh, people in the economy, hang on, you know, we're right about inflation and just, just you know, cool it a little bit, I suppose you could say that. Um, and so I think the market has uh, taken this as negative uh, in that if they're going to raise rates uh, more rapidly than expected, it means it could uh, result in a slowing economy, you know, down the line. Because if rates go up too much, then it does slow down the economy a bit. But I must actually f- say that I actually always find that a little bit of a funny argument, because to my mind, when reserve banks around the world raise 
interest rates because of a strong economy. That's good. It means actually that things are going very well, and they're just trying to they're just trying to keep it, you know, just keep it, keep keep their growth more even, you know, like an even keel, if I could call it, uh, you know, um, and take the, the I, bumpiness I, out. I don't often understand this response that markets have to rising rates. Rising rates are often a sign that things are good. It's it's at the end of the rate cycle. Sorry, if I might just finish. One hundred percent. You know, where where you you know you've now had you know where things are getting too exuberant and people are too optimistic, and that's if you raise rates there, that's when when you have big corrections. But in this environment, I think this is not necessary. You know, I'll, I agree with you entirely. It's something I could never really understand. I've always seen a rise of in of, of interest with a buoyant economy, almost like putting a fin on the back of a racing car. It's exactly that. You know, all it's doing is making sure that the nose stays on the ground. <laughs> exactly. That's a great analogy. I love it, yeah. Okay, next time yeah. you use it, you need owe me royalties, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. no that's, that's, that's a spot-on analogy. So, um, um, I, and, and, you know, so my view would be that, you know, should we be buying baked beans and wine? No, I actually think this is what happens. Um, and, you know, you always get a bit of volatility. Nothing goes up in a straight line. And, uh, you know, uh, funny enough, if, if you get more falling prices and you get a bit more volatility like this, and you're lucky enough to have a bit of spare cash floating around, um, I think it's, you know, I'm always amusing. People say, well, it's a buying opportunity. The truth is, well, if you're in the market, you've got no extra cash to buy stuff with. Right. Um, but, but actually, if I had a bit of spare cash uh, on these wobbles, um, I, I think it's worth uh, uh, looking at these as buying opportunities. You know, you know that, fundamentally, the world economy is stable and sound, and these markets are not outrageously overvalued. So that's exactly the point that I wanted to discuss with you. Ultimately, the markets are sound simply because there is economic buoyancy around the world. People are buying, people are spending, people are developing, there's R&D happening. There's mm. activity happening, not like it happened in 2008, 2009, where mm. there was just everybody just put everything on ice. Everything froze for mm. a period of a couple of months. There's activity happening, and with every trip, there's going to be a bit of a roadblock. There's going to be a bit of a tour, detour. You might even lose a tire, but you don't mm. throw the car away. You just replace the tire. No, look, I, I think, uh, again, another uh, another good analogy. I think what's happening now is um, you had this global financial crisis in 2008, and without dwelling on what went wrong and the causes were of it, Let's just say that there was, you know, we, we, we nearly had a great depression. You know, the global economy and the global banks nearly ceased or right. seized, let's say, like an engine seizing. Um, and through various responses, policy responses from governments and from central banks, the Federal Reserve in America or the Reserve Bank here, um, there was interventions to prevent that. Now, you know, there was a lot of debate on whether the interventions were the right interventions or wrong interventions. But let's, we just know that there were interventions. But the truth is, it's taken us 10 years. I mean, people forget. I mean, I've got young analysts working for me. And when I say global financial crisis, they go, what is that? You know, <laughs> but, but the, the truth is, it's, 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 it's 10 years down the line. And I think we are only now starting to see what we call the normalization of the economy. I mean, you think about, go back to the Great Depression in 1929. Um, it was only by 39 that things start coming right. Tragically, you know, World War II uh, um, was, you know, one of those things that pulled the world out of, uh, uh, out of uh, the depression. But, you know, we avoided a Great Depression here, but we, we, we've take, it's taken a long time for things to, let's say, normalize. And so I think, 
this doesn't mean happy days. It just means that we're through through the through this financial through the GFC, and now we're going to have normal economic cycles of, you know, things will get you know that you know, of, of 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 stronger growth and weaker growth periods, and maybe the odd recession here or there, but the rising of interest rates in America, um, I think, signals normally normalizing of the economy, and that's good. Uh, it means that the stresses that we've been under for the last ten years are. Not all gone, but are, are going. And in Europe, it's it's, it's not dissimilar. Uh, they're a little bit behind the the Americans, but they they'll get there. Fantastic, Jeff. Thanks for putting that in perspective. Before we get onto the topic that we were meant to talk about for the next eleven minutes, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with you in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 Chai FM. Welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. It's 19 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. And those of you who stayed with us, thanks for staying with us. On the line is Jeff Blunt, MD of Bayhill Bay Capital. Jeff, let's get to the topic briefly that we were meant to talk about before the world hit a bit of a wobble yesterday. <laughs> There's been a change in the hierarchy of the ANC. The ANC is a ruling party in South Africa, the way our democracy works. And, and I say that with a great sense of pride because we do have a democracy and it does work. Um, that the president of the ANC is the president of the country. And we're now looking at maybe a transition. The rumors are, the vibe is that the ANC actually does not want President Jacob Suber to give the State of the Nation speak, um, the SONA in a couple of days' time, and end of the day, we've seen markets ready, we've seen rand strengthen, we saw a bit of a slip today. What's the general mood in the markets over the last couple of weeks? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I, I might almost characterize it by a pre-December elective conference and then the post-December elective conference. Um, <clears throat> so, I, you know, uh, uh, prior to the elective conference at Nasrec in December, markets seem to be naturally pricing in a a Sura Maposa slate victory. Um, and I'm, some, you know, they always say the market knows, but I don't know how the market knew that. You know, because the rand was strengthening, the markets were railing, and everyone was quite optimistic that he, you know, was going to win. And, and the interesting thing that um, I... I observed at the time, and we did a, we, you know, we did some work on it. Was thought, you know, how did they know this? Because not even the people within the ANC, I think, knew. So my concern was there was an excessive optimism prior to the elective conference, and then, funnily enough, I think we've had uh, perhaps a little bit too much optimism post the conference, um, because I, I think that everyone is, and I don't say it's, 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 it's not unfounded. I think maybe it's a little bit excessive. And the reason why is because, um, uh, you know, the, Cyril, Cyril Ramaphosa and his slate didn't win entirely the top six. The top six is split down the middle between, let's call it the NDZ supporters, three, and then there's the Cyril supporters. Right. And we can see that right through to the, you know, the NEC, the top 80 within the ANC, that it is a split organization. So while Cyril is president, um, it's not, you know, he's president of the ANC, he's not yet president of the country. Um, and they are having to go through the current hard yards now, which we're seeing, um, and that is uh, 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 the party has indicated they obviously want the president of the country, Jacob Zuma, to leave office, and he's indicated he doesn't. Um, so, you know, this is not a slam dunk, if I could call it. Um, I think, you know, we, we, you know, all indications are that he is going to go at some stage, and that the Cyril... Um, 
Ramaphosa camp will, you know, will will be dominant within the ANC. But it's not a slam dunk, and perhaps not as sanguine as markets have priced in. I think they're almost pricing as if Cyril is president of the country already. Correct. And there's a long road between here and there. Uh, but but obviously we're going to get there. I don't think I don't think anyone's actually arguing against that. Um, you know, even let's say the, the the Zuma campaign or the NDZ campaign are not arguing against it. They've accepted that. Um, so I think we are going to have a little bit of a tumultuous time between now and then. And you know, markets are going to go up and down. And the rand, which is in the short term very sensitive to politics in South Africa, is going to get a bit of volatility. But in the meantime, yes, I mean, apart from the last two days, we've seen the rand do well. Um, uh, we've seen the stock market rally. And interesting, the rally, which has been quite nice that we've seen in the market, has been more your domestic-facing stocks. So it's companies that are more based, their business operations are more based in South Africa, um, which means that investors and the markets think that your domestic companies or domestic, your, your local economy is going to do better going forward under a Ramaphosa um, leadership. And I do support that. I think that is very much the case. But like anything, you know, markets tend to get a bit excited and they get a bit over-exuberant on the upside and then they get a bit overly pessimistic on the downside. You know, we, we, we like the roller coaster rather than, you know, in, in, in the world of investing than, than the um, more even keel approach. Correct. Um, but, but what I must say is that I, I do think in the, in the medium to longer term, the optimism which we, we're definitely noting both uh, within the businesses we deal with as well as in the markets, uh, as well as talking to economists, as well as talking to, to, to other you know, uh, politicians, businesses, is definitely a feeling of, of both relief um, but optimism. And, and, I, and I don't think it's unfounded. You know, we've got... Um, you know, we, we, you know, just tick off the, where we are. You know, Mugabe's gone in Zimbabwe. We look like that. You know, I, I see that they've started issuing 19 year, 99 year. Yes, I saw that also. Correct. Yeah, you know, back to farmers there. So, the, you know, there's definite move there to, to, to normalize and actually open up that economy. I think that Ramaphosa is very clear that he wants real structural reforms in the economy, the South African economy. Um, we're going to get proper policy coming out of, for example, out of the Department of Mineral Resources, DMR, um, as opposed to the divisive policy we've seen now. Um, I think accountability, finally. And, I mean, look at all of the um, – I mean, you can't turn on the news without hearing this commission, that commission, Correct. parliament. Uh, suddenly, actually, it looks like people who were untouchable six months ago and two years ago are suddenly – been held to account, and I think this is all very good for for democracy, and all very good for South Africa and the functioning of our economy. So, um, yeah, uh, it's, we've got a long, hard road ahead of us. But, but I'll tell you an interesting stat. So, this, if you wanted to know the South African growth rate since 1992, okay, largely tr- tracks global growth. Okay, so in fact, the, if you want to know the best indicator of how our economy is going to do. Is not is actually just look at what the global economy is going to do, and unfortunately, in the last five years uh, under the current president of the country, um, that decoupled and essentially we flatlined. Um, and so, if just under um, the, under the new leadership in the ANC, by just you know not doing this, the destructive things that we've seen from from behaviour, you know, from from sort of policy paralysis and corruption and state capture we could probably just track global growth. 
And that's great. I mean, that immediately gives us 3% in the bag, which is actually a nice number to have for us at the moment. You know, so I don't think it's hard for us to get back to the 3%. The real hard work is we need to get 5 and 6%, and that's actually where the challenge lies. But I think that the markets are pricing. Investors are saying, okay, with Cyril there and new leadership in the ANC, we can probably go back to our, our, our 3% structural growth rate, which is in line with global growth rates. And I say, I'll take that. That's a nice operating environment for business here. You know, but despite all that, even in the dark days prior to the elective conference in December, mm-hmm. where, you know, before the commissions and started, I'm talking about early 2017, mid-2017, mm-hmm. the market sort of caught a wake-up and almost discounted government. Mm-hmm. And the market almost said, what are the fundamentals of business? What are we looking at? Why, where is the growth? And sort of got on a bandwagon independent of government. Yes. So if yes. we now couple that together with a functioning government that is mm. um, focused with policies that suit business and that, mm. excuse me, is good for the country, mm. we, we're really on to a good wicket. Mm. No, I, 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 again, I think, you, I think you're spot on. I think that in a way business had got to the stage where they needed to just get on and do things. Um, and then if you start creating a conducive environment. Yeah, look, my view is, is that actually, you know, government's role is to create a, a, a policy framework for business to grow and then make sure citizens are taken care of, you know, you know through, through health and education and other things, but not for governments to direct the economy. Um, you know, and um, I think if we move into that framework, which it looks like we're moving to, you know, government must just facilitate business, business must make the jobs, create the wealth, and government can then help through taxation, then ensure the welfare of society. And and I and I, and I think we're, we're we're moving away from the last five years, which was almost policy paralysis, paralysis, where you where you just got a feeling government paid lip service to lots of things, good and bad, but didn't really do much, um, and was much more interested in in you know in 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 furthering its own agenda, which wasn't always in the interests of the economy or the country um, and I think that's gone past you know and, and also it's also interesting enough I think you're also seeing a response to democracy here whereas the electorate out there um, who might previously have voted ANC for example might say oh, hang on I, I didn't like what was going on I was going to withhold my vote or vote for another party and so what you're actually seeing here is is the governing party responding to the electorate and really saying look the electorate doesn't want corruption the electorate wants competent service delivery we better do that, otherwise we'll get voted out. So I think this is all very powerful and all relates to a maturing of the democracy of our democracy, which is, I think, very, very good for the very good for our future. Jeff, on that positive note, thank you for making the time. Um, thanks for for coming on the line. Next time we'll see you in studio. Absolutely, I'll be no thank you. An absolute pleasure. Wonderful. Thanks so much. That was Jeff Blunt, MD of Bayer Capital, who's always ready to come on the line. And uh, I really hijacked the 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 interview because we were meant to talk about the ANC um, transition of power, but we had to speak about what happened yesterday in the market. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do our third segment of the three investment, um, three segment investment discussion that we've been having. Um, we'll come back. We've been talking about flexible investments, unit trusts, tax-free investments. We'll be back with you in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 29 minutes to talk to one. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you are with us from the beginning, I found the interview with Jeff 
always um, uh, really, really interesting. Um, Jeff, the MD of Bale Capital. Really what I wanted to understand from Jeff is what happened yesterday on the markets? Is it a correction or is there something fundamentally wrong? And as I really felt when I looked at it late last night and early this morning, is that it's just a correction in the American markets. It's a correction after something's run very, very hard and done very, very well. All of a sudden, people get uh, you know scared of heights, and they stop, and some fall off, some skid, some go a bit backwards. But what you do is you ultimately get a consolidation. I haven't looked at the markets in South Africa over the last short while, but when I left my office, things had already started to stabilize. The drawback had started coming um, back. The ran had slipped a little bit. Nothing, you know, we had fallen out of bed, and I really think it's a healthy sign. It's a sign of a functioning international market where you can have gains people then take the gains off the table they cash in they sort of clear the charts and they say right let things settle where we're going to start from now it's not a case of people swimming naked and the tide goes out and those are left exposed it's about maybe people going a little bit too far out and now saying whoops i'm not comfortable here i want to come back where my feet can hit the ground and you just see this mess um retrieval of this max uh, this mass pulling back of people and all they're really doing is saying we just want to go back to terra firma where we are comfortable we're not coming out of the water but we just want to make sure that we can feel the ground and we've got some sort of um, security that we're not going to be swept away and once that happens and the confidence is regained and rebuilt people will then start to test the waters again the reason I mention that is those of you who have got investments, today is the early part of February. Today's date is the 6th of February. A lot of you will be receiving statements from January from your financial institution, from your financial planner. But if you look at the fund statement dated 31st of January, and you look at it dated 8th or 9th of February, you're going to see a drastic, drastic change. And the question is, what do you do? And that's when you really need to ask yourself the honest question. Now's the time to actually make a, what we call cheshbon nefesh in Hebrew, um, a, a, do it, uh, your own sort of calculation in your mind. Give yourself an honest exacting and ask, do I have the guts to be an investor as opposed to a saver? Because if this wobbly is going to send you into a total spiral and you're going to lose sleep and you're going to get on the phone and you're going to get uptight and nervous, then you're not an investor. Because this is exactly what investing is, to, is all about. When we talk about increased risk for potential increased gain, you need to go through this. And just as, a, as an aside and as an analogy, I've been listening to quite a few motivational short clips on YouTube about running and athletics and getting yourself ready because I've worked very hard to, you know, take myself back onto the road, start running again. We have really neglect, neglected it for many, many years. And my first foray into that just led me from one injury to the other until I met a really good physio who basically told me I've got to take baby steps again. I've got to learn how to run. I've got to strengthen those muscles that are not in my legs, but are holding my body upright so that my legs are not doing all the work. And all of a sudden, I've become a lot stronger, a lot fitter, a lot lighter, and a lot more comfortable on the road. And 
uh, just as an analogy for me that if you're not prepared to understand what's going on in the bigger picture in investing and you're simply going to give up every time there's a market wobbly, then you need to take yourself out of the risk zone. You need to take yourself into more comfortable asset classes like money market accounts, like maybe some income funds, maybe low equity funds. You need to divorce yourself totally from foreign exchange fluctuations. In other words, asset swaps where you've got money in different countries and depending on how those investments do and depending on this, the exchange rate between the rand and those currencies, so your investment will fluctuate then you need to really re-look at it. And if you are investing and you've got time to go, one really needs to just fuss bait and sit it out. Um, it's been a very, very tumultuous time the last three, two, three years. We've had a great six months. But if you are investing for the short term, rather look at yourself as a saver and not an investor and take the risk out of it. It'll give you more peace of mind. It'll give the person you're dealing with a lot more sanity because every time the market moves, they're not going to be expecting this frantic call from you. But it's again, it's about knowledge. It's about empowering yourself so that you understand what the scenario is and therefore you can weather the storm. Um, Today, as I said in the, in, at the intro, is the last section of a three-part investment series that I've, I, was, I was doing. Last week, we had Charlene Kinnear in, who is a very, very experienced financial planner, um, not directly interfaced with clients, but doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes the, 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 the work, spends a lot of time studying, spends a lot of time understanding things. Um, and, and really positioning the market for financial planners to go out and give the clients the best possible advice. And the result, the result, the feedback from the listeners was absolutely overwhelming. From me walking into Shul last Tuesday evening, really just getting such encouraging remarks from people. Thank you, everybody, to, uh, to, to listening, to bumping into people, to people sending me messages on email and both on Facebook. But what it really emphasized to me is that financial planners and those of us in the financial sphere tend to get carried away by our own frenetic way of doing things. Things are hectic. You're constantly working. You're using terminologies that you become comfortable, comfortable with. And yet the investor whose money you're taking and who you're ultimately responsible to is often left feeling a little bit left out the terminologies they don't understand because they're not colloquial. They don't use them every day. The, 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 the returns, the way things work are not explained in a way that they can make an informed decision. Yes, I'm not saying you need to give your investor an MBA class. But what I am saying is that there are many, many tools out there to empower people so they understand how things work. So I've just spent uh, eight minutes going through that. Let's get into the last section. And there I'm talking about unit trusts, what some companies refer to as flexible investments, and also tax-free savings accounts, which is basically the same thing. So let's look at the global picture, the big picture, the macro point of what a unit trust is. First and foremost, a unit trust is a flexible investment vehicle. So you can take money, 
you can invest into a unit trust and you should be able to have access to that money at a moment's notice. It doesn't mean if you call your financial plan and say, hi, listen, I know it's half past three on Tuesday afternoon. Please can the money be in my account tonight that it's going to happen? No, there's a process. There might be a withdrawal form. You might need to send updated FICA. But within three to four working days of receipt of all documentation, you should be able to have your money. Certain companies like Investec are phenomenal with that. You can really get paid out very quickly. You can even pay a fee to get out paid out even faster. So just bear that in mind. And that's what it's all about. So it's by nature, it is flexible. You can put money in, you can take money out. There should be no penalties for withdrawing. And there should be very little fees for putting money in, aside from maybe a financial planner fee who's helping you with the process. And I've got no issue with that. If you have got the service provided to you where you simply someone comes to you does everything you just email the FICA documents and the process is handled for you then you know I, I often feel I'm very happy to pay for that service it's a, it's, a, it's a weak analogy but you know if you go to Nando's and you place an order without even looking at the menu because you know exactly what you want and the gentleman the lady writes it down and puts a piece of paper in the kitchen Ten minutes later, they bring a plate, they give it to you and tell you to, you know, they wish you a, a pleasant meal. And they expect 10% for that. You know, when someone comes out to you and does all the paperwork, preps it, files it, keeps it on record, you know, a, a fee between half a percent and 3%, I don't think is unreasonable, as long as you know about it and you, and, and you can negotiate it with the individual. So the money now goes into this unit trust. Where's it actually going? Where's it being invested? So just like with your retirement annuities and your endowments, which we discussed in the previous two weeks, you have an array of different investment vehicles, sorry, different funds that you can use for your money to be invested in. And let's, let's use a simple analogy. You can go into cash, just like a money market, and let's call that risk factor number one. In other words, one is the lowest risk factor. So it goes into a money market account. You are almost guaranteed that you'll get X return on your money after fees which are presented to you. So you know what your fees are going to be on an annual basis. You can quite accurately predict what's going to happen. Yes, money um, uh, interest rates, prime rates might change and therefore you'll fluctuate together with that. But barring that, Net of costs, you know exactly what you're going to get. And then the whole compounding of interest comes in. So if you want to put money away for a shorter period of time, you want very low volatility or no volatility, you want certainty, you can go into a money market account in a unit trust and you've got absolute peace of mind. The downside of that is one needs to look at the costs of doing that as opposed to going to your bank and opening up a money market account. Would there be fees there? Would they be comparable? Would the, res would the returns be comparable? And you need to work that out. And often, it's just better to open a money market account in your bank and transfer the money from your current account or your savings into there. You know what interest rate you're getting and you've got direct access on the internet and it's a lot easier. So just bear that in mind. Now we start moving up the scale. And the more risk we start to take on, the greater the return we expect to get from our money. So let's use money market as the benchmark. Let's say we're going to get there for between four and five and a half percent, depending on the bank, depending on the, the, the time you put there, et cetera, et cetera. That is your risk-free rate. 
In other words, there's no risk in putting money there. For every bit of risk that you get, that you bring onto your investment, you expect to have an increase in return. Otherwise, why on earth would you do it? So again, let's use a very simple analogy. If you've got a 1.3 Toyota Corolla, do not expect a thrilling drive. It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to get you economically and sluggishly from point A to point B. If you go off the road, well, there's either an oil slick or you've got bad tires or you're just reckless. But if you go up to a 1.6, then you expect a car to perform. You might need slightly more higher performance tires. You might need to be a little bit more alert. You might need to just accept that from time to time you're going to get a speeding ticket because you didn't realize that you were over, you know, the speed limit of 18, you were doing 92. Or if you're in the crew, you actually got no idea what the speed limit is in certain towns. And you think you're sitting at the speed limit, but yet it's actually 10 Ks below. But those are the risks you prepare to take in order to have a more thrilling drive. And then you can go up to your two-liter turbocharged and if you don't have a bumper bashing or two or a scrape or two, then why did you bother to buy a performance car? And that's a very similar thing when it comes to choosing your funds in the unit trust. If you want to have the highest potential growth over a period of time, one needs to accept volatility. If you're in an equity portfolio, tomorrow morning you're going to be crying because it dropped today. You need to give it 24 hours to reflect, so to speak. If you're in a conservative portfolio, today's drop might not affect you at all. But yes, the last six months rally in a conservative portfolio didn't really return that which an aggressive portfolio would have returned. So to me, the one factor that is really, really important is how long do you expect to invest for? You know, if those of you are screaming out, well, I've got absolutely no idea, then one needs to look at somewhere in the middle. And those funds we tend to call balanced funds because they have a balance between equity exposure, between interest, all those interest, interest vehicles, and they've got bonds and gilts and all other fancy things built into it. But it's designed to give you a less volatile road, uh, trip with a more straight growth trajectory, but you're not going to shoot the lights out at the good times, and you hopefully will not be burnt too badly when the market corrects, if it corrects for a longer period of time. But if you're not prepared to have time in the market, then quite frankly, even a balanced fund is not for you. So, I hope I've, I've I've positioned it. And when I hear people say, my grand invested in Unitrust and she told me that they are useless and that a particular company's Unitrust are the worst Unitrusts in the market, then you know you're speaking to somebody who has absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Unitrust are phenomenal investments. You need to understand what you're getting into. You need to understand how long you want to invest for. And if you don't like the performance of a particular unit trust that you are in, call the particular company and say, hold on, am I in an aggressive portfolio? And they say, yes, sir, you're in an equity portfolio. Say, please will you just change my portfolio because I do not have the guts for the volatility up and down. And then again, sit down with somebody, understand what you're doing and make the change. That change from one portfolio to another portfolio, can you do it in a unit trust? 
Absolutely. Is it easy? It should be painless. Except for one thing. That's tax. Because by making a change in a unit trust, you will trigger a tax called capital gains tax. Capital gains tax is a tax that is levied when you main, when you make a capital gain. So very simply, if your unit trust in one, in one fund was worth a hundred thousand rand, it went up to two hundred thousand rand, and now you're cashing out for your uh, long anticipated round the world global uh, cruise, and you need every penny. You are going to give SARS a portion of the hundred thousand rand gain that you made. So a lot of you might be screaming, but that's not fair. And the corollary to that is, it is fair. That's the tax that you need to pay. But you only pay tax when you have made a gain. So if you're triggering capital gains, understand that you've made a gain. Now, it's not a full tax on the 100,000. There's a certain portion that is exempt every year. And then there's a percentage as applied to the balance thereof. So as long as you factor that into account, then a unit trust becomes a very efficient vehicle to use for investment purposes. That is the one tax. The other tax I want to discuss is a tax on the gain um, of the, the investment that you have besides capital gains. But let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 Chai FM. Welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. I've got about seven minutes left, and I've obviously opened a hornet's nest. A lot of messages coming through asking for the exact tax rates and all that. I'm going to run through them quickly, but please, this is not advice. This is simply the fact as to what tax rates are applied to unit trusts. Please sit down with your qualified financial planner, Go to your investment house if you haven't got one. Be in touch with me so I can point you in the right direction. But do your homework so that you understand what you're getting into. With CGT, there is a CGT um, exemption of 40,000 rand a year. So you've got a 40,000 rand exemption of that. And uh, then you will pay at a maximum rate of 18% thereafter. But again, only when the switch is made, only when the, the, the gain is realized. So if you had a unit trust of 100,000 rand, it went up to 20 million rand, please God, and you don't do anything with it. You don't pay capital gains. You only pay capital gains when you put your hand up and say, oh, I would like some of that. And you ask for an amount, the amount of gain that you made on the amount that you're withdrawing, that's where you're going to pay capital gains. The other taxes that you are liable for on a unit trust are rental and interest, um, um, sorry, rental and interest income, but they are taxed at the investor's marginal rate, which is the maximum um, of 45. It can be a little bit less um, or can be a lot less, but the maximum rate is 45%. So therefore, you do have an interest um, exemption of 23,800 if you're below 65 or 34,500 if you're above 65. In other words, the first roughly 25,000 rand of interest you don't pay tax on and thereafter you will pay. So just bear aware. I had a question yesterday. Someone is looking at the unit trust happens and they're saying, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my e-filing and saying to me, interest earned. I said, you don't need to worry about it because 
your funds are pure equity funds. There's very little interest, and your interest is way below the threshold, so don't worry about it. But just to be aware that if you've got income-type funds, if you've got money-market-type funds, and you've got substantial amounts, you will need to pay tax on interest earned above either 23800 if you're below 65 or 34500 if you're above. The one thing that I do want to impress upon you is that if you're investing with the view of taking regular withdrawals, in other words, you're going to invest, you're going to put the money away, and then you're going to make withdrawals, you're going to be taxed on rental and interest income at 45%. And you're also going to pay um, um, dividends tax and it's all going to be at the highest possible rate for you as an investor, whatever your rate is. So if you're somebody who's sort of got out of the working market and you're not paying tax at great levels anymore and you've already dropped down to the lowest, then one needs to look at a unit trust because you are paying the tax on the real tax rate, marginal tax rate that you have. But if you are still earning and you're doing very well and you're on the maximum tax rate and you want something where you can have withdrawals on a regular basis, then you need to go back to our discussion two weeks ago and we touched on again last week. Maybe an endowment after a five-year period where you are taxed at a, at, at a flat rate of 30% might be more advantageous to you. So if you've got bigger amounts of money and you're looking to make withdrawals, one needs to choose the right investment vehicle for yourself. Um, I know a lot of people asked me yesterday, but I was at, not yesterday, um, during the week, I was advised to go into an endowment because I have limited access to my money and uh, therefore I wouldn't be able to touch it. Uh, there is logic in that and sometimes people do need to be forced to be disciplined because if you're somebody who has constantly cashed in your unit trusts without giving them time to grow and to develop and to mature and to marinate, so to speak, then I'm not quite sure that unit trust is you is for you. Yes, you might pay slightly higher tax in an endowment in a particular scenario, but then you can only have one withdrawal during the first five-year period. Some companies allow two, but you are limited, which is sort of a sense of self-regulation on your investment. But you just need to have a look at that and just see how it all works. Um, I just briefly want to touch on the next two points on the tax-free savings account, these you can get anywhere. You can get them from your bank. You can get them from any investment house. The logic is very simple. The government is looking to encourage people to invest. So that they're allowing you to put a maximum of 33,000 rand away every year to a maximum of half a million rand over your lifetime. And what then happens is that there is no tax on the growth of that money. So if you put it in, let's use a simple ex- uh, scenario, 2018 tax year, which means at the end of February, you have put in your 33,000 rand. There will be no growth in it. In two months' time, you decide, oops, I need my money. You can take it out. You can have access to it at any time. But what's very, very important to bear in mind is that you cannot put it back. So you lose the advantage of having it. It's there only so long as you have the investment. If you, withdraw, if you withdraw it, you lose it. And it's there really to encourage people just to put money away for as long as possible so that you can get tax-free, grain, uh, tax-free growth on your money. 
I just want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for all the questions. I didn't really get to them this week because they came through fast and furious. But um, you know how to get hold of me. The regulars get hold of me on an ongoing basis. But uh, thanks to Michelle Tates for putting the show together. Thank you for listening, and we will speak to you next week.